Advent is when we focus our attention to the coming of Christ. We take intentional moments away from the busyness of the holidays to remember the true reason for our celebration. The Advent candles remind us of Jesus, the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Isaiah the prophet calls us to prepare for the coming of Jesus by making straight all that is crooked. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us prepare for Jesus, the Christ, who is anointed by God to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. For as a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Would you bow your heads and pray with us? Jesus, would you be our focus this season? We are reminded as we prepare for the celebration of your birth, may we also be prepared for your promised return. Your death has given us life. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And we're reminded that in this time, in the deep darkness, Lord, the light of the world was given to us. So we just pray as we focus on that this season. It's in your name, Jesus. We thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, while we have them up here, I thought it'd be a nice time to pray for our newest addition to Generations. And so uh, two Sundays ago, Noah was born, like a good little Christian, born during church, right? I mean, <laughs> or, or that speaks to them not wanting to come to church so bad they'd have a baby. Then. I'm not sure. I, it's one of those. But one of those, the commitment's there to Sundays. And uh, Noah has joined us. You got to see him this week. We got to see a picture of him last time. And in the picture, is a beanie on. And so I FaceTimed with him like a couple days later, and I could not believe how much hair this little guy has. And so, yes, all you women out there just went heartburn, pregnancy. I know, I know. So whether that's true or not, still, he got a full head of hair. But what we do as a church is, is we know that we're a family of families. And, you know, as the saying goes, it takes a village, right? And that we commit together to one another and to Alex and Renee to mutually help raise Noah in Christ. And we've made it very abundantly clear, especially this year, and we've saying it for years, but this year especially, that it is the responsibility of Alex and Renee to raise Noah in the faith. But it is our job, and my job as a pastor, our job as members of one another to walk alongside and partner with them. And so we take that seriously. And so I'm just gonna ask, will you guys please stand up and we're going to pray for them, and we're going to pray that we walk alongside them well, and that they disciple. Would you come stand out here? And I don't want to overstay our welcome, because he's being so good right now. You guys join me in prayer? God, thank you that we have the amazing opportunity, Lord, to see this day come about. And may many more, Lord, come about through other families, through them, if they choose to have more, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever you have for us. Uh, but a special moment, I have to admit, for me, as I've walked along these two, alongside these two as young single people, as dating, as engaged, with the privilege of doing their wedding, 
twice, thanks to COVID, to see them get pregnant, to have a child, uh, just there are moments in pastoral life that is challenging. This is not one of them. This is the blessing of all of it. And so, Lord, thank you that I get to celebrate this. Just selfishly for a moment, thank you for the joy that I get. Lord, I pray for this family. I pray for Alex as he is the head of their household, their family, as he leads spiritually. I pray for Renee as she is the mother that she desires to be. I pray for young Noah that he would never know a day outside the faith. May he never know the dumb and painful things that so many of us have done. May he know only life in Christ. I pray for Christina and for the extended family, Lord, as they're around and partnering together. I pray for us, Generations Church, as we are a family of families partnering with them. All for the sake of the discipleship of Noah. Lord, that's powerful. That we gather right now and we remind ourselves of this that is so precious to us that he would know Jesus above all else. Help us as a church to support this family, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Oh, I interrupted. We didn't light the Advent candle. So, my bad. I blew it all up. Joe, you want to make sure you have help getting down? This is not a good day to fumble. All right. So, church, we are going to be in the book of Ruth. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Ruth. It is, let me count, seventh book in. Is that right? Eighth book in, all right, to the Bible. If you're borrowing a Bible, there's, there's Bibles on the seat in front of you. If you're borrowing one of those, I can give you uh, the uh, page. It's page 222. As we go into this Advent season, let me explain it again. I know Pastor John explained it. I know Alex and, and uh, Renee and part of their reading explained it. Advent is the, is the term that means the coming of, right? Like the, the first coming. Advent celebrates the first visitation, the first coming of Jesus, right? That Jesus came to earth. Now, we live in a time between the first coming and the second coming, right? We long for, await, eagerly await for that time where Jesus returns once and for all to reconcile everything to himself. But Advent reminds us of what you and I would celebrate for Christmas. And so Advent is this season in the church where we slow down and we focus on the Christmas message or the message of Christ in Christmas. Now that may sound like a no-brainer, but let me just say, when we talk about the holiday season, over a a six-week span, we go from Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's in six weeks, right? I know college students that are away, it came down maybe for Christmas, go back, and then they come back in December, there's this kind of end of semester, there's all these things going on, and then the Christmas season itself is bananas, right, with family gatherings and church parties and work parties and all these things, and so sometimes if we're not intentional about focusing on Jesus, we can actually miss Jesus in Christmas. Make sense? And so our job once a week on Sunday, not that it isn't our job seven days a week, but once a week on Sunday, we're just going to pause and remind ourselves of why this is so important. And this year, we're going to use the book of Ruth to kind of take us through a story that reminds us and centers us on why Christ is so important. And so 
Ruth chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. If you have a notepad or a journal, please take notes. There's a, a little note thing in front of you if you don't have that. I know the kids, you have a handout. There's a note thing in the, in the chairs. And the reason that's important is at the end of the message, you can have an opportunity to turn to somebody around you and just share what is a takeaway that you heard from today that you want to apply to your life over the next week or so. And so always, we encourage you, take good notes. Let me give you just kind of a main idea for today. So Advent, we're going to talk about hope. Christmas, or Advent, focuses on why Christ entered into humanity. Today, we want to ask ourselves if our hope is truly in Jesus or anchored in our circumstances. See, Ruth tells the story about God's redemptive plan, and it does so by telling us of two women whose physical journey teaches us about their spiritual journey. So two women take a physical journey, and what that does is really reveals their spiritual journey to us. So Ruth chapter 1, let's start in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now before we talk about this chronologically, what, where this takes place in the story is right during the time of the judges and before the kings come into play. If you just scroll backwards or turn back a page, you're going to see Judges 21-25, and it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now I want you to hear that again. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that would be shocking, except that's pretty common today too, right? Like that, we have a tendency to do what is right in our own eyes. Even those of us who profess faith, have scripture, study scripture, all of that, we have this tendency to think that we can manage what is right and wrong, that we have some ability to do that beyond scripture. And, and that's where the people and judges are. Now, the, the, the book of Judges, it tells of a series of almost like mafia-type tribal leaders. They are all corrupt. Um, there's really no good ones. There's not a whole lot good that's going on. But it also portrays this, this sin, judgment, or punishment, uh, repentance, deliverance, sin, judgment, punishment, deli I mean, or repentance, deliverance. Like it, it shows this cycle that goes over and over again. And it goes like this. The people begin to be disobedient to God. And typically, they do that through false worship, worshiping other idols, doing other things. And so they they let themselves get into this place, and when, when they get there and God calls them back, not that God hasn't already told them right from wrong, but God calls them back. When they don't listen, God gives them some discipline, right? My, if you're a parent, you can think about this, like, first you set the ground rules, you know where things are, hey, don't do this, right? When you do this again, then there has to be something to bring you back. But for the goal of discipline as we talk about often, is redemption, right? We want to restore the child, or we want to restore, God wants to restore the people. And so the discipline that occurs is either a conquering by an outside tribal group or nation or, you know, whatever group of people, or in this case, sometimes famine. And so God will remove some of his blessing, whether that be protection or provision, and he will allow Let's just say nature take its course. He will allow them to be hungry. He will allow them to be persecuted. And when that happens, they tend to return to God. So they, they sin, and then there's discipline, and then they kind of turn the corner to repentance. And when they repent and they return to God, then 
God blesses them again, but as we see over and over in the book of Judges, and we see it again over and over in our lives, sometimes under the blessing, we forget that it's from God, and we find ourselves back in that cycle. And so the book of Ruth picks up during that era, and so it's in this cyclical time, and it's in this time where likely God is disciplining his people. Let's read verse 1 again. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, so that gives us our historical time frame, there was a famine in the land. Now, it never says that God caused the famine, right? We know God is sovereign, God is above all, but it never says that he particularly caused this, but there are hints and cues, we'll see a couple of them today, that God is using this to discipline and bring them back. So it says there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, interesting note, Bethlehem means house of bread, just for fun. So a man of Bethlehem and Judah, in the middle of a famine, says, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, Moab was an enemy of Israel. There was a violent history between the two groups, but they're only about 50 miles away from Bethlehem. So during a famine, this man, who is an Israelite, the people of God at the time, right? He's, he's there, and likely God is disciplining them because of their unbelief and, 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 and their bad or their poor behavior. They're, they're under this lack of blessing or this discipline. And because of that, instead of this guy, and, he, and he, there's options here, right? You can return to God and, 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 and ask God to provide, right? That would be, I'd say, the best solution, right? Or you can try and figure it out your own way, which I would say is our most common solution, right? We take things in our own hands. Let's go figure this out. Okay, so here's what he does. He's going to go to Moab. Now, he could have stayed. He could have led a revival of people repenting and returning to God, but instead he chooses to go to Moab. And without digging through the, the first five books of the Bible and showing God's commands about the Moabites and their history and, and throughout the books of Joshua and Judges, how the Moabites are constantly at war and persecuting them, just suffice to say this, where they go is not towards God, it's away from God, right? They, they head to a place that worships primarily an idol named Kamosh, and, and they don't go to a place that is godly, they go to a place that is ungodly. And that gives you a little clue about kind of who they are and where they are. Verse 2, it says, the name of the man, so is the man, Elimelech, and the name of his wife is Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malian and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now in verse 1, it says they sojourned. So sojourn is a temporary travel trip kind of thing. Verse 2 says now they remain in Moab, right? And so this is about a man and his family who no longer trust in God to provide for them, though they profess faith in God, and we'll see that throughout this chapter, that though they profess faith in God, they do what is right in their own eyes, as the book of Judges ends with, right? And so this, this, this chapter today is going to have this contrast between remaining here and returning to where we should be. And so they sojourn, they travel, they go to Moab, and then they remain, right? Once, they, once they're there, they get comfortable, and they stay. Now this chapter is going to use this language of returning about a dozen times. And there's not just a physical component to it, but there's a spiritual component to returning. 
Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So verses 1 through 5 set up the story. They set up the background to what we're going to read about throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, right? And what it is really is setting up for us Naomi, and now we're going to meet the other character in a minute, but we're going to, we're going to, see, we're going to he, hear or read or see, we're going to see the tragedy that she goes through, right? So right now, she just lost a husband, and she is left now a single mom of two sons. Verse 4, these, meaning Naomi's two sons, took Moabite wives, all right? So they're going to take, peop- they're going to take wives who don't worship God, right? The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died. So the woman was left, meaning Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So tragedy grows for Naomi, and we're introduced to Orpah and Ruth. Now, Ruth's going to be critical to the story, clearly, because the book is called Ruth, right? But this is setting up our characters for us in this true history story, and these two women, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is the mother-in-law to Ruth. Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons. Ruth has lost her husband, I suppose her brother-in-law and father-in-law, right? And so sometimes tragedy defines where we are, right? Sometimes hardship in life, the struggles that we have in life will define kind of where we are in life. And so I would just ask, so just kind of if we could pause just for a minute and just see where we are, what defines this season for you? Is it the activities? Is it the family events? Is it gift giving? Is it painful, maybe tough memories or circumstances? Do we allow the hardships of life or do we allow allow kind of the, the festivity, if you will, of life? Do we allow that to shape where we are this Christmas season, right? What defines your emotional and your spiritual state this December, this Christmas season, right? Is it circumstances or is it Jesus? Right? Now, when we look at all the circumstances, they can be good, they can be bad, they can, they can move us to those places. And I'm, and I'm not trying to undermine hard circumstances. But when we consider Christmas, what defines where we are? Now, I'll, you, I'll give a personal place for the first 30 years of my life. The last 25 have been different. The first 30 years of my life, I hated the holiday season. I have a bad history with family, and, and uh, I don't really have good memories of family and home at all. And so things heated up, especially around Christmas. And I've been with my wife now for 40-something years. We've married, we'll be married 25 in May. Yeah, she's put up with a lot. So um, <laughs> she's watching, so... Uh, but she can tell you that I would just implode around the holidays. They were hard. And I wasn't a Christian, but they were hard, and and my external circumstances drove that, right? My relationships or my lack thereof drove that for me. Well, the shift that happened wasn't just marrying Lisa and creating new habits, but the shift was about Jesus, right? The, The change in my life was that Christmas now centers on Christ, and not all that big on all the other stuff, really, right? I, that, that I, I, I see Christ as the driving force for what we're doing, and then we celebrate around that, right? And that changed everything for me, and, and that, that helps anchor me to one very stable thing this season, that's Christ, 
So it's not dependent upon how is Lisa's health doing or how are our finances or how is the church or how is family. It doesn't depend on that. It is anchored in Christ. Verse 6, and it says, So when she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So first use of the word return. We see that a lot today. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the Lord had visited his people and given them food means God is restoring blessing to the people. So again, though it never says God outright caused the famine, right? It never says God caused a famine to discipline the people back to repentance or to to restore them. It does give us clues all around it that that's what's going on because the Lord visits them and gives them food. For either way, he's providing for them. Now, Naomi, out in Moab, again, about 50 miles away, hears of this and decides, it says that she rose to return. Now, that's a key theme in Ruth 1, is this story of returning. So the first five verses set us up. They go, they remain. Now, the rest of this, from 6 all the way to the end, is about the returning. And again, like I said in the beginning, there's a physical journey that is going to teach us about their spiritual journey. So they're physically here, but that also reminds us where they are spiritually. They wouldn't be in Moab if they were worshiping God rightly. Make sense? And so because of that, this physical journey back is going to teach us about their spiritual life as well. So Naomi and her family physically left during the famine are returning, right? Spiritually, the people of God left being faithful to God, but now that home in Bethlehem, at least, they're being faithful and God has returned to them, right? And so if we're trusting in anything other than Jesus for our hope today, or even if it's not hope, maybe we're not struggling, maybe we're having a great season, but if we are, if we are basing that in anything other than Jesus, what do you think the call for us is? Well, it's to return, right? It's to return to the purpose of Christmas. It's to return to the meaning of Christmas, to anchor our hope, not in what Santa's going to bring, but in what Jesus has already brought, right? That it, that it reminds us of where our mind should be. Verse 7, so she, Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return, note the emphasis, to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return, note again the emphasis, for each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So there's little pieces in here where we hear Naomi speak about her faith. Naomi hasn't left worshiping God for some other faith. She didn't become a Buddhist overnight, right? Like she's not over here. We don't hear her talk about Kamosh, which is common in Moab. She continues to speak about the God of the Bible, right? She continues to speak about her God. And she even blesses him. May he deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with my husband, with my sons, right? Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So she is sending them back to find new husbands, in fact, her blessing or her desire for them is that they would find rest by finding new husbands. Now, you've got to go back 3,500 years-ish, 30, 
600 years ago and understand the culture, right? There wasn't a I don't need a man kind of vibe in the culture. Here, businesses and land and incomes were owned by men. And so if a husband died and you had sons, it kind of passed on to the sons and they cared for you. But when your husband died and your sons died and now it's you and your two daughters-in-law, there's no men there. You're in a mess socioeconomically, right? And so her desires, they would find other husbands to provide for them rest. Now, that makes sense logically, but it misses the point spiritually, right? That their rest is to be found in God. Naomi's unrest is found in her lack of husband and sons. And that's not to undermine her loss, right? She has truly lost people, men, three, a husband and two sons that she loves. So the, the pain of the loss is there and valid, right? We've all lost loved ones. It's valid. We go through that. And there's no prescribed time that it Oh, well, this long, and then you get better, right? Like, it, it's, it's different. Depends on what's going on. And she's suffered a lot of loss over a decade, right? Now, in this, though, her hope for rest is still human, right? Her, her hope for rest, her hope for care, her hope for ease of life is not in God. It's not even in God for them. It's in man, literally in men, Right? So Naomi's state of her faith, she's still a believer in God, but she's chosen to pursue her own solutions in life rather than the pathway that God has provided. Naomi has suffered some very hard things, maybe related to her choices, maybe not. Here's what I mean by that. She goes into Moab, bad choice, probably her husband's choice to be fair, right? Maybe she led the charge, who knows? We don't, we're not told. But while there, things happen right? She remains. She marries her sons to Moabite wives. Now, maybe this is God drawing her back one thing at a time. I don't know that. It doesn't say that. I would never say that's for sure true. Because it's also very possible that we live in just a broken world, and these are the things that happen to go on in this woman's life over a span of a decade. So it might be by her choices. It might just be because she lives in a broken world, right? We all live in a broken world, we all suffer tragedy. And so regardless of the point, this is where she's at. She's suffering. Now, Naomi is returning to her people, but not out of repentance, but rather because the Lord has visited them, right? They now have food. There's a distinction here between returning in repentance and returning out of pragmatism, right? You with me? See, the gospel is very simple in, in that aspect of it. There's a God who created us and loves us, designed us, made us, and knows how we are to be, right? We short form that here and just say we were created to be worshipers of God, meaning not just singers of songs or prayer of prayers, but those who give glory to God, who bring worth to God. Our lives should show the worth of God, right? And so that's how our design is. But sin entered into human history and we inherit that sin, and then we sin, and we add to the problem, and now we live in a broken world that we both inherited and we broke further, if you will, right? So we live in this broken world, this world that is defined by sin and brokenness, pain and suffering, and that is the cause of human sin, right? God made a world without sin, without pain, without death, without suffering, without illness, without loss. Sin broke that. 
So God could have left us in our sin because we choose it. We continue to choose it, right? We all know. Those of us who have walked with Jesus for the longest still probably know the best. There are those moments where we know better we still choose to do wrong. Right? And so here we are in this setting, and God could leave us to our solutions. God could leave us to our decisions. God could leave us to the, to, to the outcome that we have caused. But God, in his benevolence and mercy and grace and love, did not want to leave it that way. So God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The very story of Christmas that God became flesh, that God, Jesus, became human, fully God yet fully human, to come and enter into our story, our history, our world, to overcome it on our behalf. So Jesus lived a sinless life. He died the death you and I deserve. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we don't have to. He was laid in a grave to forgive our sins. He rose from the grave to give us new life. And here we are. Jesus ascends back to heaven the gospel is fulfilled, and we live in a world where now we can be in Christ. Right? We, can, we can make that decision to follow Jesus every day when we get up. By the power of the Spirit at work within us, we can live faithfully for Jesus. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And so returning to Jesus means repenting, right? Returning from where we were and turning towards Jesus. Right? We, we use this verse a lot. It's in Acts 2, and this is the first gospel preached in the, in the church after Jesus ascends, and Peter preaches a gospel filled with Old Testament references and very focused on the crowd. This Jesus whom you crucified, because he's in Jerusalem, right? This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, like God overrode what you did. It's a pretty pointed gospel. But then it comes to this verse. Can we put up Acts 2? 37 and 38, it says this. Now when they heard this, the crowd hears this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what happens. They hear the gospel. They want to respond to the gospel. And what they're told to do is repent, to turn back towards God. We are all a humanity that has run away. And the call of all of us to repent is to run towards, right? Is to return to who created us. So this idea of we went and did our own thing exists. Like Naomi and your family, they went and they did their own thing. Now the call is to return to the God who has provided salvation through Christ to us. We do that, we repent, we turn from sin. We get baptized if we've never been baptized. We have two baptisms today that we get to celebrate because people, yeah, that's good. Because people have made that decision to return to Jesus, and that outward sign of that is being a part of the church through baptism. Verse 10, it says this, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So Naomi says, I'm going home. You guys stay here, go get new husbands, find rest in new men, and they say, no, we want to go with you, Right? Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now, this is, without getting too far into it, there was, a, there was a provision by God given that if you married a husband and he died and he had brothers, they would provide children for you. They would provide a son so that the inheritance would follow the son, right? Really weird in our culture. 
but that's what they had, right? And so what she's saying is, I have no more sons, right? And if I started today, how long we got to wait, right? That's what they're saying. So verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I hope, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore remain, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's a few key things in here. If I should say I have hope, Naomi is saying she has no hope, right? She is not returning out of right-placed hope in God, God restoring her, God redeeming her. She's not returning out of repentance, which brings hope. She's returning out of, I don't have any other answers, right? I'm too old for this. All these human solutions, she's like, I don't have any of that, right? And so, no, my daughters, it is ex- for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. So Naomi defines herself as bitter, and she's going to say that again in a few minutes. But then she says this, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, this is probably more common than I, I would like it to be, but there's this, this sense of, and we'll use COVID or uh, suffering and enduring a loss, why would God do this? Right? That's the question we get asked a lot of times, like, okay, in COVID, all this stuff's going on, we got the question, why would God do this, right? And we have to back up through the lens of the gospel and say, remember, God created a world without this, that sin, human sin, created the world we live in, Right? And that's not saying, like, listen, your sin caused this thing. Sometimes that's true. Most of the time that's not, right? You can tie that to, like, you can smoke and cause cancer, but you can also be born and get cancer without doing anything to cause it, right? Sin in the world, a broken world, right? And and so there's this idea that why did God do this? Well, God didn't do this. God created a world without this. Humanity did this, right? The, the, The tragedy, for the most part, that we endure, the suffering that we endure typically is man-made, if not just the result of sin, but oftentimes caused directly by humans. But God has also provided the way out of it. That through Christ we are redeemed. That through Christ we have great hope. That, cre- that through Christ we have transformed lives. Right? That the gospel changes, redeems, transforms us. And so we ask this question because we're trapped where we are, And it's a normal question, it's a common question, why would God do this? Or maybe even a little more faith-filled version, why did God allow this? The same idea. And that's where Naomi is. Right now, God is the author of her problems, not her. God is the cause. Verse 14, talking about the two two daughters-in-law, says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Right? So Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, chooses to return home. Right? She's going to go home as Naomi suggests. Now, Ruth, on the other hand, it says clung to Naomi. Now, we know where this is going because the book is named Ruth. Right? So Naomi and Ruth become our characters right now. We'll add a third uh, next week or week after. Next week. But it says now, verse 15, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law, right? Note the return again, right? Gone back to her people and her gods. See, the spiritual state of Naomi right now is such that she still believes in the God she professes to believe in. 
but he is the cause of her problems, not the solution. And clearly, he is not the best alternative for Ruth. In fact, she says, why don't you go back to Moab and return to another faith? Like, why don't you go there? Right, that would be better for you. I can't find a way in my life where there'd ever be a moment where I'd say, hey, you should do this other thing, right? Because if we believe what we say, if, if Jesus is the one true God, right? If there's a God who created everything, if there's a God who made us, if there's one God, truly, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if that is true, there is no place to send anyone else, right? There's nothing else to say, oh, you should go try this. I mean, you know, maybe that'll work for you, right? That's moral relativism today. But that can't be where we are if we believe what we say we believe. So she's going to literally send her back. So Naomi's a bit estranged from God, right? She still believes in God, but she doesn't trust him. Her hope is limited or restricted by her circumstances. And so because of that, God is the cause of her problems, not the solution to how she gets out of them. So again, just checking in with us, how might we be like this, right? How might we view our circumstances maybe as God's causing or even God's allowing rather than something that maybe we have caused or the broken world we live in has caused, right? I think we should always check with us first, like, hey, did something I do cause this, right? And if we can exhaust that and come up with a no, then the answer is we live in a broken world, right? We live in a world filled with problems. This is just one of them, whatever this might be, right? We live in a world of deaths. We lose a loved one, death, we suffer, right? It's just a part of the world we live in. Now, if there's something we can understand, hey, we did this, or we're living outside the will of God, like why would we expect God, even in his grace and benevolence and goodness, why would we expect God to bless this when we're living over here? It calls us to repentance, right? And so we ask first, obviously, about ourselves. Do we see our situations as caused by sin and brokenness, whether it's ours or just the world we live in? And do we see Jesus as the solution? Or are we trapped in a place where it must be God's fault? Because after all, God is sovereign, and God must be causing this. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now this verse and the next verse, like we said about three weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13, used often in weddings, right? Like 1 Corinthians 13 gets used a lot. Love is patient, love is kind, right? We use it in weddings. It's actually about how the church should relate to one another. It's good for weddings, don't get me wrong. But it's really about the relationship of church family members together. This one here, though excellent in a wedding setting, uh, very amazing words that a, a man and a woman can say to one another. But this is truly about the conversion of Ruth, right? Ruth is converting to following the God of Naomi and being permanent family with Naomi, right? To return with her to her people. Note the return again, like 12 times in this chapter, this returning, returning motif, right? She's going to return with Naomi. Her people will be Ruth's people, and her God will be Ruth's God. Now, I just want to take a minute, and I want to think about our two characters today, right? When I say characters, I don't mean make-believe. I don't mean that they're fake. They're, they're real-life human beings, like we're watching a historical 
movie unfold, right? But there's still characters, there's still people in our story. Naomi, though a professed believer in God, sees God as the problem. And she is returning out of pragmatism because there's food there, and she has nothing else left here. Ruth, on the other hand, is returning out of faith. She's turning to follow the God that Naomi professes, however negatively, but God, the God she professes, and she is going to make those people her people, and her God, her God, right? Naomi's God, Ruth's God. She is making a change where everything in her life now is changing. She could go back to the comfort of Moab where she was born and raised. She could go back to the comfort of her family. She would go back to that, but she is moving this direction. Again, we talked about baptisms today. When we see in the, in the two women that are being baptized today, we see they're, they're leaving what was behind, and they're, they're leaning 100% into Jesus, right? And we're becoming their people. Now, they don't have to abandon family members. We're saying that we're becoming their people. Or we've been their people, and that's what, hell, I don't know. You know but we're, we're, we're family of families now, right? Let's restart at verse 16. So Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, the God, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Ruth takes a voluntary curse upon herself if she is to do anything other than go be her people and go worship her God until death do they part, right? You can see why this gets used in weddings, right? But this is a full commitment Ruth is making, and it has a spiritual implication. So we see this physical journey again. We see them traveling to Moab and then back along the way back from Moab. And as they go, what we learn about them really teaches us about their spiritual journey, Naomi's estranged from God, even though she professes to believe in God. And we have a lot of that, a lot of professing to believe in God, but lives that don't match what that looks like. Fair? We know that that's true, that, and that we know that we can all struggle with that, right? That we say one thing and then we live a different way, right? We just call that sin, and we all do that. But sometimes what we profess to believe is the exact opposite of the way we live, and that's Naomi. She's just estranged from God, and she's going back out of pragmatism, not out of repentance. But Ruth came from being a Moabite, from different worship practices, and is now heading towards Bethlehem to be Naomi's permanent people, to worship Naomi's God permanently, leaving, forsaking everything else until death. Right? She is making this commitment, and it's, and it's showing us her spiritual journey along the way. Verse 18, it says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Right? Naomi sees that this conversation is not discouraging Ruth in any way, and that Ruth is going to go with her anyways, so they go. Right? So off to Bethlehem they go. They're going to make this travel now, we're going to leave Moab. We've been on the journey. Now we're going to arrive in Bethlehem, right? There's another familiar story that happens in Bethlehem. I'm trying to remember what that is. Okay. Christmas, that's right. Verse 19, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So they returned to Bethlehem. It's been a good 10 years, right? We were told earlier that between the death of Elimelech and the two sons, Malan and Kilian, there's about a decade spent in Moab. And so it's been a 10-year period of time, and now Naomi returns to her hometown, Bethlehem. Verse 20 says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So Naomi means joyful. Her name means joyful. There's some irony for you, right? Mara is the name that means bitter. She says, don't call me joyful, call me bitter. Now she's coming back bitter, to be fair, but listen to her reasoning, right? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So she's returning, and it's God's fault. So we're following two women who are walking the same road, but very different reasons, and very, they're very different inside. One is going there for, out of faith and out of love and has hope. She sees where she's going. She knows what she wants to do and to be. And the other one is going there because she's run out of answers other places. And it's like, well, they have food there, and I'm from there, but I'm not happy about it. I'm bitter. See, Christmas isn't always easy for people. There are a lot of people here who are dealing with struggles, illness, loss, suffering, just suffering. Right? The, the, the holidays bring on sometimes depressions and struggles. Now, on the other hand, we have people who just had a baby, and we, we, we have people that are, you know, I mean, that just are in all phases of life. They're just... We're all over the map, right? We've got at least two pregnancies going on for that the, the will deliver the next few months, and, and some are very excited. Some are struggling. But again, those are all the human circumstances. We can't just have a good Christmas because Noah was just born, right? We celebrate that. We love that. But that can't be the reason for my joy this year. It can't be the reason for Alex and Renee's joy. They can have joy in that. But Christmas must be about Christ. Hope must be in Jesus. Let's restart at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So is it God's fault? We don't know. We, we don't know if... If God caused the death of her husband and her sons, he could have, but we're not told that. We can't say that. She's saying that, but she's not in a good place, right? Not like Jesus is saying, that's why it happened. That would be different. Naomi's in a bad place. She is blaming God. We don't know the cause of this. It could be the broken world we live in, or it could be God getting Naomi's attention. And I have to ask the question, if it is to get Naomi's attention... And to bring her back into the fold, is it worth it? It's easy to say yes when you're outside of the story, but yes, right? Now, I want you to see the perspective of Naomi. She went away, she says, full. She came back empty. Now, if my memory serves me, and I know I'm getting older, but it was just earlier this chapter, it says she left because of what? wasn't quite full, right? She was the opposite of full. 
She had a family. That's fair. She has a daughter now, right? She's not actually coming back empty, but she didn't really go away full either. She's allowing her circumstances to define where she is with God. We do that a lot, right? I do that a lot. And my takeaways, I'm going to say that in just a minute. But I allow circumstances to shape some of those things, right? Her perspective is that she went away full, came back empty, but she wouldn't have left if she was full. And she's really not truly coming back empty. Yes, she suffered some loss. I'm not undermining that at all. Verse 21, I'll read this again. I went, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I'll say this. If the Lord has truly testified against her, if she in some way knows her disobedience is the cause of this, if she does, and I, and I, don't, I don't think that's what this means, She's allowing circumstances to be the Word of God, right? And, and that is dangerous in all kinds of ways. But if she knew, if she knew that her disobedience caused these things, then she should be in a different place. But I don't think Naomi is 100% correct on this. But again, what if she is? If she is, if it is for her spiritual good, if it is for her eternal good, and for the eternal good of Ruth, for that matter, then it, it may indeed be worth it right? We, we saw this in 1 Corinthians when we did that hard chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 where they deal with someone who is in such sin that they remove him from the membership of the church for his own good. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 2 that that worked and he's brought back into the church, that he's restored in his faith. And so hardship or discipline for the sake of redemption is good, however painful, Right? And what if this is God's doing to get her back to her faith? Then, then it's eternally to her benefit, where temporarily to her suffering. And ultimately, God would be doing a good thing. Remember, all the way back to Revelation 3, God said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove, I correct, and I discipline, Right? It's not punishment for punitive sake. It's discipline for correction and redemption, restoration's sake. Right? God says, if I love you enough and you're doing something damaging, I'm going to correct you no matter how painful out of love. Parents, we understand that. Right? We, we get what it means. People, members of this church, we know what that means. We talked about that. How can I say I love you if I know you're living in such a way that's damaging to your faith and not say something. Now that conversation doesn't always go well, but hopefully rooted and grounded in love and, and said in kindness and love, hopefully over time it makes sense. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, now it's going to call her Ruth the Moabite a lot. She is an outsider, but that's part of the story. She's an outsider brought in, right? I was an outsider brought in, right? Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, but it also gives that relational value to Naomi, her daughter-in-law, right? Who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So today's story ends with a bitter Naomi, a hopeful Ruth, but a very odd end to, if you will, like if, if we think of a movie or a play or something like, the end of the scene is in an odd place, Right? 
except for this last line. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You see, the Lord had visited Bethlehem. That most likely means brought rain. He brought rain, which would cause the food to grow, pulling them out of their famine. When did they arrive? Right at the beginning of the barley harvest. Food now exists, right? So we see this undercurrent, this, this glimmer of hope because of what God is doing, right? Even in the midst of Naomi's bitterness and, and discouragement and lack of faithfulness and her overt saying it's God's fault, in the middle of that, God is still good. So we ask ourselves the question, no matter where we are right now, is our hope in Christ or is it in our circumstances? And I want to ask it two ways. Are you just thrilled about this season because it's this season and you're defined by you love the lights and the gifts and the stuff and you, you can't wait for the work party and the family parties and the baking and, and you just can't get over yourself because you're over here? Or are you defined by the negative, hard circumstances in your life over here? See, both of these are equally wrong. This misses the point as much as this misses the point. When we're rooted, grounded, anchored in Christ, Christmas is different. The reason Advent exists in the church is because we need it, right? It sounds brain-numbing that why do you have to focus on Jesus during Christmas? Like, we focus on Jesus every Sunday, but you can snort. But we need to slow down during this season because this season will carry us away, right? It's like a flood coming that will just get us consumed up in it, right? And so we pause to remind ourselves, like, this is not about that other stuff. It's not about family. It's not about gifts. It's not about this. Those are all good things inside the main idea, which is Jesus, that Jesus came to earth to reconcile us from a broken and sinful humanity to a holy God. And then we couldn't do this. All we could do is continue to break this. And then because of Jesus, we get to begin to live this way. And then ultimately when Jesus returns and fixes all that is wrong, we will live here eternally in the world as God created it to be. But in the meantime... We will struggle with highs and lows and things that will draw us off focus. But Jesus is our focus. Naomi's over here. Ruth, more focused, right? Maybe we're over here, maybe we're over here. We must focus. So where are you looking today to find your hope? And if it is in anything, and I would suggest all of us have misplaced hopes, right? Misplaced focus. So where are we misplacing our focus this season? And how do we return? So for myself, I often allow circumstances to drive my perception. I want to look more at what I can see around me that points to what Jesus is doing subtly. I'll give you an example. Today we have two baptisms. We have a members meeting after church. We are voting to receive 26 new members. Huge. That can't drive my perception of what's going on any less than if it were another season where we had no new members and no new baptisms and whatever. I want me, this is my takeaway this week, doesn't have to be yours, I want to see what God is doing in the midst of us apart from some of that. Because they're back at the beginning of barley harvest. 
and Ruth has come to faith. And I want to see the subtle things that are going on and see where God's hand is moving. That's my takeaway. For those who have been walking with Jesus for some time, you are needed today to help us keep focused on Jesus and the hope that he provides in a world filled with distractions at Christmas time. For those of you who are new to the faith, who have recently come to the faith or come back to faith, or maybe have never really grown in your faith as, as maybe you should or want to, you get to enjoy a new hope this Christmas. You get to focus on Jesus over and above anything else in life for the first time, maybe. For those of you who are not yet Christians, the gospel message today is that we live in a broken world. The solution is found in Jesus. God is not the author of of brokenness, he is the solution to it. God didn't author the pain. God author, authored both the right, the world without pain, and the return to him. Kids and parents, parents, do you teach your kids how to disengage the worldly surroundings of Christmas? Do you truly let Jesus be the focus, or is it all about presence and Santa? Is it about Jesus over and above everything else so that the thrust of this season is Christ? No matter what you celebrate, no matter what you participate in, do we keep our kids anchored to Jesus? Let's take two, three minutes and let's turn to one another. Please don't leave anybody out who might be sitting there or maybe new or a visitor or a guest today. And what is one takeaway you want to apply to your life this week that you heard today?